Hello everyone and welcome to the Talk Music Podcast, where we talk everything and anything related to the world of music. My name is Scott Kebby, I'm a musician, I'm a podcaster, even though it's been a while, and I'm an author. That's the reason it's been a while, because I have been writing a book called Things You Won't Believe About Music, and you can get that book online on Amazon. The best-selling book, well, it's not really best-selling, but you can help it be best-selling by purchasing it today. I sent a copy to the guest that we've got today, Kaki King. Now, to be serious, what an absolute pleasure it was to talk to Kaki again. We are back with a bang. Kaki is one of the pioneers of guitar music. Genuinely, hand on heart, one of my favourite artists. The very first time I interviewed Kaki, many moons ago, as they say, it was after a Glow album, maybe about a year after that, which is an amazing album in and of itself. And then she brought out Neck, um, Neck is a Bridge to the Body, maybe a few months after I'd interviewed her. And honestly, that album and that whole presentation is just phenomenal. She is streets ahead of a lot of guitar players, a, a truly, truly great artist, who in this interview says that she's looking to leave behind a legacy at this point. And that's a great way of putting it. Absolutely brilliant. I'll shut up just now. Let's get on to the interview of the one and only Khaki King. It is the Talk Music Podcast. My name is Scott Cowie. It's been a long time, but we are back and I'm joined by none other than, well, somebody that is a wizard. In my eyes, <laughs> she is a genius. Um, Khaki, I'm probably embarrassing you here. You can cover you your if you want. Yeah, I wish you I'll, I'll continue. In fact, that's all I'll say. But this person is, is absolutely brilliant musically. But I've just told her, um, as we were off air, that I'm about to become a parent. So Kaki's going to spend the first minute or two of the interview just telling me everything that I'll need to know about being a parent. So I won't have to bother yeah, yeah, anything else. Just, I just want to know everything. And I won't have to worry about anything else for the next, the next few <laughs> decades of my life raising a child. Talk to me. Okay, um, you have absolutely no control over anything, and you need to let go of the idea that you're going to mold them and shape them and grow. They're they're who they are. They come out who they are, and you just you know like support that person. Um, but babies are boring. Like little babies are super. You're so in love with this like little worm that sleeps and cries and it's strange because you didn't expect to fall in love with a tiny squishy screaming worm um but you will and they slowly kind of get interesting but you know what here's here's actually some advice not to uh be too much of a making too many jokes but my then this came from my therapist and she said it, you will not always like your child you will always love them but it is okay to go through phases months weeks possibly years where you sort of don't really like you you don't relate you don't get into their activity you don't really you know and that's and that's okay because there's going to be times where you are like really really on the same plane and it will come and go and that has totally borne out to be true sometimes i'm like i just can't i can't stand the sight of you and then other you know phases come through and like we are inseparable and I think that not many parents are honest about that because it feels like, oh, I'm a bad parent. Like I've always loved my children, no matter what. But there's definitely times where I like them, <laughs> you know, 
I like them a little bit less, and that's okay. It's great advice. Thank you very much. Um, and one thing that I've always really liked about you is your honesty. Like any time that I've obviously I've interviewed you a couple of times before, <laughs> and I've I've really liked how straight to the point you are. And sometimes you you unapologetically give answers that you think, well, you know, you're kind of. But sometimes I feel that I'm always kind of asking a question. There's a kind of maybe a standard answer to it, but one thing that's always great about talking to you is that you always kind of give answers that, you know, I don't actually agree with that. No, I don't actually think what everybody else thinks about this certain topic. And yeah, well, it's it certainly, my big mouth has gotten me into trouble more than once, but um, hey, it's just, <laughs> I'd rather be honest. <laughs> the, has there ever been in your career um, and music, like opportunities that have came about that you felt like, um, do you know what? I don't really want to take that certain opportunity because that doesn't really kind of suit me, even though it would maybe at a certain point in time, people will present it to you, like, we'll put you in a bigger stage or or you'll get a lot of publicity doing this. Has that yeah. ever happened? Yeah, and a lot of time, yeah, I mean, it, it, I can think of some examples. For instance, I was invited to open David Byrne's tour. I mean, like a, a, like a year-long tour. Um, Back in like oh eight, no, it was even maybe earlier. But I had my own record coming out, and I had my own idea of what that wanted, you know, what I wanted to do and how that wanted I wanted that to look in the show. I wanted to be longer, and and I turned it down not because I, you know, I'm a huge fan of of David Byrne, and I certainly would have, you know, would have been amazing to have that, you know, lengthy musical connection. But I, but I felt like it was I needed to you know express myself in a in a bigger way and it was just a lot of it was you know a time commitment um occasionally there have been sort of endorsement and active you know activities or people were like you know come and you know show your face at this fashion thing and I'm like I no <laughs> it's not I'm not really um I feel like fundamentally I'm, I've, I'm a musician's musician. I always have been. I'm not really interested in becoming part of like, you know, a larger, more amorphous culture or, you know, being famous for being famous or, or seen and whatever. I'm a, yeah. I mean, but, but the fortunate thing too, is that <clears throat> whereas some artists, you know, you can get a glam team on them and they're like you know they're transformative well that's just not really you know fundamentally i'm not gonna no one's gonna tell me how to play guitar differently so all of the smoke and mirrors is not really ever gonna work for this girl you get what you you get what you pay for you get what you see <laughs> tommy emmanuel andy mckee khaki king there's a there's a select selection in my eyes of musicians that have they're just respected and sorry I'm embarrassing you again khaki right but I'll, I'll try not to get too much into it but is this an me, interview or you just you just just needed to call and gush <laughs> a little bit of both a little bit of both um parental advice and gushing it's all it's all coming out. um I think that there's in my eyes all our musicians want to be in that place where just that there's so many people that are like yourself that are just totally respected like every musician respects what you do and and what Tommy Emmanuel does and what Andy McKee does and all these guys do. Um, that must mean a lot more to you. Like you said, um, are you a household name? That Possibly not. 
But um, that area where you're just completely respected by a lot of different musicians and fans, that must feel a lot better than being, like you said, in, in some sort of glam arena, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I think having longevity, having the respect of my peers, having a, you know, like a, at this point, a legacy is, it, it. you know, on the one hand, it certainly is a nice, uh, you know, it, it's nice to, to look back and, and also look forward. But on the other hand, you know, if I had been a flash in the pan, I don't know that I would be happily married with two children, still doing a job that I love, you know? And I don't, and I think too, the, for some people you like, like you go, you go up and then you can't, you can't really go down. There's no room to downsize a career that's really large. Um, it may look kind of embarrassing or it may just not work or, you know, the scale of it sort of, you know, but for me, I'm very happy no matter what the size, no matter what the scale or the, um, you know, the, the, whatever the event looks like or the gig. I mean, I love a dive. I love a nice stage. I love a theater. I love a festival. You know, it doesn't really matter. I've, I've been able to do my thing. And frankly, I've had enough moments where it's been quite depressing, <laughs> you know, where like you played at 400 people the night before and the next night you're playing to eight and stuff happens. And so I think I've had enough experience just being okay with the ups and downs that I don't worry about them as, you know, I don't, I don't fear them. Um, so it's been, you know, I, I feel like my, where I am is, is a very nice sweet spot and I'm not worried about getting any bigger. You said you don't worry. Um, you must have experienced everything there is to possible experience when you're on stage about things going wrong. Um, Tell me, yeah, I mean, <laughs> where do we begin? <laughs> Has it ever been, at what point did you just stop worrying? Because when a certain thing happened, you go, well, do you know what? There's no need to be nervous anymore because after that specific yeah. thing just happened. Yeah, I, and I think that's that's certainly, you know, I have made, I have, I think that the, look, you know, common things that happen on stage you know, you break a string, I think the whole audience like has a heart attack and you just change your string and you continue, right? I mean, it's really, you know, I think that I have to take care of the audience's emotional reaction more than anything. So I've certainly, I've, the, you know, PAs have failed, fire alarms have gone off, um, people have fainted, people have gotten into fights. Um, uh, you know, I've dropped things that I can no longer reach. My pedal boards exploded once or twice. Um, amps have broken. <laughs> I mean, really, like it's all, you know, and and that, and I could have any a very successful show and even have something like that occur because it's that's the nature of production. You know, you're talking about um, locations and stages and equipment that may have been set up very recently or maybe very very old. You know, I, it, it's really sort of normal for technical difficulties to occur, and I think like every time another one happens, I'm like well, I didn't die. And well, no one else died. And the fact is like, you know, as long as a giant light fixture doesn't fall flat, you know, on my head, I'm probably going to be okay. Um, and so 
you just really roll with it. But yeah, I've had my share of calamity as, as does any musician that's played for 20 years. Um, but really, I think nowadays, I think much less of myself and much more about sort of making sure the audience knows that it's going to be fine. That, you know, the whole disaster or the PA going out or the lights, whatever, um, that, you know, like we're going to make, we're going to get through it together. That's a very good, uh, the, the parent in you is coming out there as well. <laughs> yeah, the mother bird. Um, so you've got some great stories, right? You told me this a while ago, but for anybody that that, that recently, I didn't hear this interview, um, the connection with Dave Grohl, right? Dave Grohl's mm -hmm. a massive music fan, right? Tells this mm -hmm. story, this is out of this world. Part of that saga. Do you want the email story or the playing on stage story or playing on the record story? <laughs> I've got to have them all because I don't even know the email <laughs> story. That's not even what I was referring to. So take take it right back to the start. Okay. So I my recollection is that I got some grapevine of Dave. Dave Grohl wanted to con contact me and, and was given my email address, and he wrote me the craziest email about he and I were going to form a band and the band, name of the band was going to be the star spangled ass shredders. And I just didn't really know what was happening. It was just this very sweet gushing, e you know, email about like how cool my music was. And I guess the whole food fight, I mean, they're such crazy music fans. I think they had sort of found me on YouTube and we're all just, you know, sharing videos. So, um, you know, that really sweet. Um, and then, but actually connecting with the guy in, in person in reality was just a, you know, he was hard, much harder to pin down, but he was incredibly enthusiastic <laughs> about the band we were going to, we were going to be in together. <laughs> um, yeah. So, we so then I came, to... eventually I, I was out in LA and he, he's uh, they're making the, the album echo silence patience and grace and he he said i have this song and he told me the story about these miners in tasmania and they were stuck underground they could get they could communicate with them and get them food and water and they couldn't get them out and they said what do you need and they said we want you know we want foo fighters music so they dropped down ipods with foo fighters records on it so dave Grohl promised these guys that he would like write a song and, and put it on his album. And he was like, Oh, now I have to actually do this. So he said, I have a song to, I have to play you a song. And I thought he meant they're going to go, cause we were in a studio. They're mixing the record. I thought he was going to play the track. He's like, no, I have to play it for you on guitar. So he started playing the song and I picked up another guitar and I started playing with him. So then we ended up a couple days later recording our version of that song which is the battle the ballad of the Beaconsfield miners. And and I you know I really thought that was that and then I was invited to open um the Foo Fighters Australian tour which was crazy. And you know when you're opening an arena show it's really just tragic. They open the doors, they turn the lights off and you play. I mean <laughs> you know there's 20 people filing in and you're already you know three songs in. So the impact is very, there's really no, uh, it's almost pointless, but you get to have bragging rights. But then in the middle of the show, he would bring me up like on their cat, you know, they had like, on the stage and then the catwalk to the small stage. So we'd like go, they, you know, I'd be walked out to the small stage in the middle of the arena and I would then do this duet 
every night with Dave Grohl. It's it's absolutely amazing. Are we ever going to see that band come to fruition? That's what I want I, to know. <laughs> listen, if I can pin the guy down, I mean, I've already made merch, you know. <laughs> I've got a warehouse full of star-spangled ash shredder t-shirts available. So, um, no, I, 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 I highly doubt that. But he he's certainly a fan and a collaborator of so many interesting people. And um, and I, I I was happy to be included in that group. Well, save me a t-shirt, medium. If that's sure, okay. okay. Awesome. Got it. I'll make a no. onesie too. Oh, that'd be cool. <laughs> that would be cool. Um, I didn't even I didn't even know this up until a couple of hours ago. You were in a film with Robin Williams. Right? Okay, well that's that's a stretch, but yes. No, I, yes, I, I, I know yes. what, I know what you're I know what you're saying, <laughs> but we're going with the fact that you starred alongside Robin Williams. Okay, <laughs> right. So right. Get, give us a story then, Kaki, if you'd be so kind. Um, it's funny because I just told this story yesterday. Um, I, <laughs> I was asked to, to re-record a Michael Hedges song. Michael Hedges is you know, beloved, fingerstyle, amazing, you know, really creative, you know, beautiful spirit. And he and he was he's he's dead. He died very young. We well, I mean you know he died when he was in his forties, but like tragically, basically. So it was definitely a questionable thing for me to do. Like was I willing to re-record this guy's song because what they wanted to do it make it they wanted to make it look more complicated, sort of you know stylistically look, um, you know sort of more like a, a, a Hedges crazy piece would. And so I had a you know, Michael and I had a conversation, um, you know, <laughs> in the beyond and I, and I did do it. And I thought that was kind of it. They wanted me to record myself playing it. So the, the actor could then, um, they, they had already shot the movie. The movie was finished. They just needed to do this, these pickups. Um, so I shot myself recording it. And then they were like, uh, here's the thing. Can you fit into a 10 year old boy costume? Because we really just, we really need you to come and do the hand, the hand doubling. And so, you know, like, um, they, we, they reshot those parts of the movie where you just see the hands of the boy. And those are my hands on the guitar. And that's the, the track that I am playing or, you know, it's the, the track that I recorded. Um, yeah. And it, and it does also star what Robin Williams um, which is, I don't, I honestly, I mean, I knew, I knew that, but I didn't, didn't really, I wasn't really thinking about it. Cause you know, you make these films over such a long period of time and in such disparate parts. And funnily enough, one of my, one of the, my, my daughter's best friend, her mother, you know, we're very close and she was his costumer. She was doing, you know, Robin Williams tailoring and costuming for that movie. So she's like, oh, we worked on a movie together. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is years ago before our children were even born. So there's always, you know, some kind of funny connection. That's absolutely, absolutely incredible. Was there not? Was there um, two songs that you recorded? There's because I often wonder there was one that he the boy yeah, was outdoors. There's, there's the one that he plays in the church and the one outside. The one in the church is is the, it's was written by the composer for the for the film, and it, it's the main theme. It's just a it's a take on the main theme. And I did re-record that, and um, yeah, and then I recorded the the Michael Hedges, you know, remix as well. It, it's absolutely incredible, um, because Michael Hedges, uh, 
there's so many guitar players I've listened to and that I've, I've always kind of subconsciously, I think, been able to pinpoint their influences or, right, okay, that, that, that person's obviously a Hendrix fan or they're a Steven yeah, Stone yeah. fan. When listening to you, I've, I've never been so sure. Was Michael Hedges, was, was he an influence on you? Totally. But he was sort of one of, for a lot of people, he's this this, this God figure and everyone else is, we're, we're just well, you know, below and, and, and fair enough. But for me, he was one of a whole collection of guitarists that I was discovering around the same period of my life. And he certainly, obviously, you know, stood out. Um, and I felt, you know, instant connection with, you know, the separation of the hands, because that was really, you know, the complexity of what I was doing technically. Um, but, you know, like we all have a couple of misses in our in our careers. And he did this record that he was singing and doing more kind of, I don't know, like, like what I remember was like, um, you know, kind of like schmaltzy fake drums. And I just didn't get into it because it was, I, I thought like, really, this is the guy they're talking about, but it was just one, one record on his journey. And so it was only later that I sort of re rediscovered him, um, you know, as a guitar player. So yes, while of course, and I listened to him growing up with my father and those records were already always on his Wyndham Hill records. Um, he was, he was certainly in, in the mix for me, I would say. Awesome. So guitar, first for you and then you move on to drums is that right and then back to guitar yeah well you know I played really I played guitar when I was really young and then I um in fourth grade they started doing orchestra and band in school and my parents said well can she play guitar in one of those and I said well no we don't have the music but guitar is basically a rhythm instrument so she might as well play drums so I started playing drums at age nine and then that continued and I kind of you know drums were much more of a social thing you know it's hard to be really hard to be just a solo drummer so I was playing drums in the in bands and um and guitar slowly started to be something I did just more on my own because I was really fascinated by by solo guitar fingerstyle guitar and you know the mechanics and the, the composition of all that you still play the cat still play the kit it's got, got it set up right over there Awesome. Do you play yeah. your Do you play in your records at all? Yeah, I played. I, I played on all of them except Junior. Um, there's a like I you know the drums on Montreal. That's me doing a double drum, double like two two drum kits overdubbed. Um, definitely on until we felt red. Although John McIntyre, I don't know. I mean, they're, they're, yeah, but I've always done most of the per anything that's just percussion. It's pretty easy. And then, you know, certain drum kit stuff like Bone Cans in the Castle, that's my beat. Um, there was a lot of percussion on Glow that was on me. So, you know, yeah, I still play the kit. Do you think that's really helped with the, all the rhythm stuff you're doing? It surely has to play a part, right? I think that fundamentally it's the separation of the hands that plays more of a role than anything. And just that, you know, when you're, when you're doing, when you're doing, you know, things that are a little more complicated that are exercises and drumming. It's really about this hand is over here and this hand's over here. And they, they're, they don't have to be in sync. You know, they can be independent. Um, and so when you mesh it together, it all sounds really amazing, but one isn't necessary. you know, you don't, it's not like I, you know, strum here and fret here and we have a, we have a sound together. And I think that's what I take from drums more than anything is that 
you know, this hand has its job and this hand has its job and, you know, blended together. It sounds amazing. It sounds great. Um, show us this beautiful guitar that you've got here. Sure. Right. Um, this, is, this is my signature guitar. It's actually an earlier prototype. This is a different inlay. So this is probably from mid 2000s at some point. Um, this may have been one of the really earliest ones because this fretwork I remember. But yeah, I, I had always played Ovation guitars and I just wanted it to be kind of simple and clean and elegant looking. Yeah. What tuning is this? It should be D minor. Let's see, yeah, it's like a flat D minor. <laughs> Shame to say, I just can't tune a guitar by ear. That's really bad, isn't it? But you? No, I don't think so. I, I think it's um, I think I'm normally fairly out of tune because of because mm. <laughs> I barely, I rarely take the time. And they're tricky. They're definitely tricky. I've seen some really astonishingly good players like not be able to tune. Like, like really not even know if they're going up or down when they're tuning. It's kind of fascinating um, where people's ear lies. It's kind of weird because Jimi Hendrix, right? And, I, and I'm probably going to get dogs abuse for this. Who? Yeah. <laughs> Jimmy, yeah, Jimi Hendrix. Sorry, what? I don't know this person. Uh, he was always out of tune live. And again, yeah. I don't want this to be a bit. No, 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 no. I no, I hear what you're saying, but he was always out of tune in his mind a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's come on. It was the '60s. Did we really need to be in tune? Um, yeah, I, I have a feeling that that was a result of the um, the atmosphere. Let's say, than <laughs> him being like, oh, I really need to get this, you know, foxy lady super in tune. No, he didn't care. He was he was playing. Do you know it's interesting as we as we mentioned Hendrix? I think he's the most underrated songwriter ever. I agree, and pro and producer. I mean, the stuff that he was doing in the studio was really, really like beyond its beyond you know ahead of its time. Um, I mean, yeah, all everything about him and the fact that he was African American and you know was really basically working in London because that's, you know, where people were less racist. I mean, there's such a rich story to Hendrix other than it's funny how Hendrix has become like, um, like, like as if he's the legendary one. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, or it's like, it's like when people need to name a famous drummer and they go Ringo Starr, you know, it's, it's mm -hmm. just like, it's like the most famous. And, um, and, and, and I think really what I think that his, his legacy tr truly is, is that he's inspired so many and mm -hmm. he, you know, and he really embodied that I can do, I can do anything on this. Um, the balance, cause he was, he was crazy and he was fashionable and he was punk and he was, you know, his songs were sexy and glorious at the same time he was, he had this technical mastery and he blended that so beautifully and so well and i think that um you know a lot of people go for one or the other and it's hard to get the both mm -hmm. no he's, he's great i think that uh, there's from that period of time is always a magical time i've got to ask i've got to take advantage of this opportunity as you're sitting with your guitar what 
what songs have you written within that tuning just now that you can maybe play a bit of if I can tempt um, I find open D minor to be really versatile actually so a couple tunes on glow um, oh that's actually the next version of the body that's not a song a song I forgot um Cargo Cult, and then one that I ripped off for myself. Oh no, that's not Cargo Cult. What else have I written? Um, oh yeah. Absolutely brilliant. Bravo, bravo. Um, so see when you're when you're composing, how what what is your process like? Is it different every time? Or sometimes you just sit with the guitar as you're doing just now and you're just coming up with a riff, or do you get inspired by an, an event that's happened, something kind of from an emotional standpoint? Is it different all the time? It's so complicated. I, I don't have the 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 answer. If I did, I would have a lot more um songs and for me it's it's like it has to start with a guitar it doesn't really start with like going and finding and I mean yes I like to go and partake in the business of the world and I feel very you know moved positively and negatively by everything around me but that isn't really enough for to, for me to run to the guitar. It's like the guitar itself has so much in it. Um, and, you know, for me playing is, is it quiets my mind. So I, I try to play every day, even though I don't have, you know, a lot of time to commit that's quiet. Um, and sometimes just playing an, a song that I've written before or playing the same riff over and over. I think writing, definitely for me starts really small. It starts with a tiny riff, even just a tempo, a tuning, a vibe, you know, it, it, it and it expands off of that. Um, yeah, and I'm, yeah, it's, it, it's, and I'm a big editor. So I'll, I'll write something knowing that everything about it's gonna change eventually. So I try to, it, it helps me get out of that, you know, self-defeating thing of like, oh, that doesn't sound really good and you suck. I'm like, no, 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 I'll, it, yes, this is bad, but I'll change it. Um, so yeah, so most of my songs have gone through lengthy, year-long, years-long process of, of, of really sit, finding where they really truly sit. I've said it before and I'll say it again, if there's an award for the person with the best song titles, <laughs> to be you. Steamed, juicy little bun, happy as a dead pig in the sunshine. Can anyone who has heard this music really be a bad person? 
hallucinations from my poisonous German street. It goes on and on and on. The best song titles. Is that, do you just, there's some of these songs that are so, um, some of the ballads, they're so moving and they're so, you know, minor key and all this kind of stuff. And I read the title and it makes me laugh. Is that just the kind of, <laughs> are you trying to achieve a happy medium there or is there even that much thought into it? Song titles are not my forte. So I either ask friends to name them and I just accept what they give me or they are, they, or I, you know, literally like throw a dart at a page on the wall and just find the three words that make some sort of, you know, and then occasionally there is a title that'll like, you know, very, be very true to what's happening in, in my life, like doing the wrong thing. Mm, that was you know questionable time. And, um, but yeah, I think also, you know, it's really, it's, it's hard to name guitar song. It's hard to name so, solo instrumental pieces, which is why half of classical music is, you know, opus number five or symphony number two. I mean, it's really much easier than having to come up with something that people will connect with. But I do think it's useful and it's a kind of fun creative exercise. Um, and I think that maybe it's a bit of showing that I'm not taking this too seriously. I like it. I like <laughs> it. Um, my wife is also a musician. Well, I'm a drummer, not really a musician, kind of musician, a little bit. <laughs> um, and uh, I'd said to her, oh, you need, you need to check out Khaki King. So I was letting her hear your stuff and everything. And she obviously took a mental note and she got me this for my birthday or my Christmas or something. Check this out. Oh, nice. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have one here too somewhere. So oh, yeah, give us a is. bit of context. If you could be so kind to explain what this is. Um, yeah, I mean, this, that this I could probably a... set it up. This is a passerelle bridge. This is mine. That's Scott's. Um, so I had seen several play several players just stick stuff underneath their, their guitar uh, strings and make some cool noises with it. And um, I had been working on a record with David Torn, who kind of had something similar. And, you know, but I think it was sort of more of an, a noise maker. So what I've done is I've loosened my strings and I put it underneath the strings on top of the 16th fret. So. So you can automatically see it turns your guitar into this, you know, a different sound entirely. Um, and you can play on both sides. Anyway, um, but what I did with this, with my friend Rochelle, so Rochelle Rosencrantz is a luthier that I made this with. And we really studied how to make it so it would be in tune and the height of the bridge and the spacing of the strings when you when you sort of do this all, all, you know alteration how to create something that will have a fifth this isn't actually a fifth it's at the 16th fret hang on um, at the 16th fret it'll have a perfect fifth which we can all agree is a nice way to write music Anyway, I'm doing this all wrong because 
I can't count 12, 13, 14, 15. There it goes, 16. All right, let me show it for you to you for real. So if I tune that up to something that's proper. sort of makes it makes its own juice you know <laughs> it really is really fun and as a guitarist you're taken completely out of your comfort zone and yet it's still your instrument you don't even go and drop another thousand dollars on this so I think that it's been a really quite fun thing for a lot of people to have um and you know you don't the, it, it, this is simple you could make it out of a, a stick or a you know a marker or anything um, but again, that that height and spacing is, has allowed us to stay a little bit in tune. How have you found it? Good. I've all, I, I can't get to anywhere near to the point where I can play anything that I would <laughs> say to people, hey, check this out and, you know, let, 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 me, let me rip on this. But overall, mm -hmm. um, I've got a lot of work to do, but it's, it's very, very handy and I recommend it. KhakiKing.com is where you can buy them, which is really mm -hmm. cool. Um, now, First time I spoke to you, it was a year and a half, two years after the, the Glow album. And in like the album after that, I felt that you'd almost completely reinvented yourself, albeit there was a lot of very similar characteristics. But um, the neck is a bridge to the body. Um, mm -hmm. Tell us about this process, because this is just absolutely outstanding. And I think the touring and the, the, the general life of this album afterwards, it, the, the, the dates went a lot longer than maybe you anticipated. It was so successful. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you know, the, the album is really the soundtrack to this very interesting theatrical show where I take a guitar that is white and I use it as a projection surface, except it is only the guitar. So it's projection mapping. You, you only see the guitar lit up. And through doing that, it creates this, this, the guitar becomes this like magical window and um you know it sort of go the, the show goes throughout these stages and tells these stories um at one point the guitar even starts speaking to you and i as a as me become a character so i'm i'm also dressed in all white and i have sunglasses on and at the time i had you know shock white hair and um the it, it became this piece of theater um, and there's also some technological points in addition to the, the projection mapping, um, I'm controlling okay, at, at times, I'm controlling what you see through the guitar. So I'll play a note and it will trigger a very specific, you know, movie or clip or, or color change or things like that. Um, so it's a very live, vibrant show. My, my video, uh, my video technician performs with me. So it, does, it never is the same thing twice. So yeah, you know, we I made the soundtrack in order to have, you know, I'll just say it, a marketing tool. Um, even though I do think there's some great songs on there. And I definitely initially thought it would maybe I would play it 10 times and that would it would, you know, go away. And that show I toured for five years. I mean, it was just astonishing. And all over the world. Um, 
and it we were able to do it again, like sort of in big in you know it read well in a beautiful theater. It read totally fine in a small club. It was it was versatile for for something that looked really high tech. We could squeeze it in just about any space. Um, and I and yeah, and, and you know the, my my wife was pregnant when it debuted, and it kind of took me through the 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 childhood and birth of of you know my my kid my my two kids and i'm really grateful for that because it was you know the pressure wasn't on to you know make something really brand new right now and get the new album out and do you know, i just i kind of could sit with this this project that was really really captivating and also do what i needed to do as a new parent so um yeah <laughs> do you think you might ever go back to that if there's an anniversary or, or, or an excuse to go out and do that again, or is that done now, or will you revisit it in a different well, kind of capacity? Well, I'm, I'm so basically, you know, it's funny you ask. I'm continuing the research. Let's say I'm continuing the um, the project. I think as it, it's it's a little bit of a time capsule. You know, the the images at some point are going to look very 2013 when it was made, you know, it's, right. it's, it hasn't really been updated a lot. We did, I did some edits and things that made it, you know, a little shinier. Um, but, but you, it's sort of, you know, in 20 years, it'll look like a shitty screensaver, excuse me, a <laughs> it'll just look the way it, the way it looks. Um, it'll look of that, of the time. Um, and so I think there's, for that reason, I sort of like to the idea of preserving it, but as far as projecting on the guitar um, creating multimedia experiences, telling larger stories through that with the guitar, with the play, you know, I think that I'm still, it's very, it's very, very fun, very captivating. It's, um, it's still new to me, even though it's been years and there's still a lot that I want to learn, a lot of people I want to collaborate with. So I think that that will continue in different, in different forms. Um, yeah. Could you tell us who you want to collaborate with? Is that a big secret? No, no, no. It's no, well, it's really more visual artists, you know. I mean, right. like people who don't even have a real first name. It's like you know, a series of digits and and uh, emojis who create these crazy graphics on Instagram. You know, like mm -hmm. you know, stuff like that. Really, really working with, because um, you know, I think that a lot of times. And I really, I've seen this very often. You spend so much time building the structure for your content that your that at the your content is like the last ten percent of the work you do. And so I'd like to make sure that you know between things that we're filming and things that we're you know generating or all of it, you know that that relationship, um, and that you know really taking a long time to create the right kind which is a, a like super long period of time to create visual content it's it's insane like if you want a new mix of a song you get it tomorrow if you want a new edit of a crazy video it's you know give me two weeks so um anyway it's it's a different timeline it's a different work process but i do want to sort of upgrade the the look of everything i've kind of stolen a quote from you and i kind of use it as my own um, oh, yeah? A lot of uh, people like yourself who've got a big reputation as great guitar player and all the rest of it, you, you see that um, there's a certain type of audience that will show up uh, <laughs> to see you. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? 
the, the guitar police. The guitar police. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, tell us about that. To be honest with you, if I was in a kind of situation where I was had a reputation for being brilliant on guitar and people were sure on the scene, I would find that kind of quite intimidating. That whole thing when tons of guitar players are turning up to watch me and and look at me like this with arms folded. Yeah. <laughs> all the rest of it. Um, just almost praying that you're going to mess up. Uh, I, I would you know, imagine maybe I'm maybe I'm being really horrible and unkind to, to these people. No, it's it, it's really it's hard to know what <laughs> what what lurks in the souls of man, right? <laughs> but there was always a um, yeah. Okay, I'll say it. There's always a set of of people, generally speaking, older men, who. We're, we're pretty judgy and and yeah I, and they were almost always you know early to the show and and I could be totally wrong I mean I think some of those those guys were like really into what I was doing and really supportive and great but there's certainly you know I it was like the kind of guy that would sort of lurk around and then he'd go and write some scathing online review about how absolutely you know terrible I was and, um, but yeah, but I think we all, we kind of, it's like an inside joke, but we all know what we, what it is when we say the guitar police, it's like someone that just refuses to have a good time because they're <laughs> just, no matter if they like it or not, they're just so like, oh, they're so tense and focused on the, you know, on something. And, um, I, I will say this, I have gone beyond the point of proving myself. I've also had like many, so many just utter disasters. Um, that at this point, it's uh, th that that kind of human doesn't really, you know, I'm old news to them. They've moved on to some other thing or, you know, most of the time the people, I mean, I'll say this 100% of the time, the people that come to my show are the loveliest, kindest, most, they're, they're so, they're, they're interested in, in listening and really taking it in and, you know, they're, they're, they're generous um, and I'm very just floored to have been you know to be able to create the kind of audience and if I have an opener I mean I you know as an, as someone that was an opening act for years and years it was always you know it was just dangerous because you get up there and no one's listening and you know you kind of you, you push through it all of my openers the, the audience is just totally there for them and I really love that and credit them with being you know so you're just so kind and honestly you know anyone that's willing I, i've said this all the time but anyone that's willing to you know find a ticket figure out how to you know take care of their schedule get in their car get in their train whatever get to the show and sit down and enjoy solo guitar for 90 minutes is kind of you know we're that's that's kind of a weird person <laughs> so thank you <laughs> I'm always making the mistake when I see people that have advertised a gig in this time, and then I always make the mistake of saying, how did the gig go? Because more often than not at this point in time, gigs are getting cancelled with great frequency. So I'll ask with yeah. breath here, last week, did this gig go ahead outdoors? It did, anything? yes. Oh, it great. did play a gig, yeah. So yeah, we've, we've sort of ignored the elephant in the room, the, 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 the COVID-riddled elephant. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, so for the first time I played to a live ticketed audience. It was outside, it was gorgeous. It was on the campus of Georgia Tech in Atlanta. 
And it was, um, you know, they, they did everything properly. Everyone had a mask on. They set it up in pod. I know you've done a lot more kind of pod seating outside in Europe that I've seen. They did it here. Um, and there, of course, there's a lot lacking because the, there's a tiny audience that's spread over this massive area. So, but at the same time, we were able to connect and I was, not I was certainly very rusty after a year of not doing shows and and everyone was incredibly kind and um and it was really beautiful it was really emotional um mm -hmm. I was you know I you know I rarely get worried or nervous because this is just something I've done for so long but I was I was definitely afraid of kind of failing in some amorphous way and, and that didn't happen and it was um it was totally beautiful and it and it's also kind of shows how much people really want it and mm -hmm. um you know are willing to sort of go through these complex ticketing and covid regulations and you know all all of the stuff that we'd sort of rather not do people are certainly willing to do it to stand six feet away from everybody else and, and see someone play music so it was really heartening a great reaction at the very end then because that, that's the first gig that they've seen in person for such a long time because that's going to be such a big memory yeah absolutely um yeah for us all and i think that you know as much as i have to become a performer again people have to learn how to be an audience member again and mm. what that looks like for the time being at least um but i'll say this in new york venues are open the, the venues that can are, are are opening up and you can't get a ticket if there is right. a live event in New York City right now, I mean, a lot of them are really going with the very, you know, different regulations. A lot of them are just saying, you just have to go, you have to be vaccinated. And, but and you can't, you can, literally, there's so, there's so much demand and so little supply of live, live events that you, you know, it's the hot, hot tickets in town. Always felt that there would be a, a resurgence to the, to the extent where, as you said, maybe people don't realize how much they would miss it you know that yeah since makes the heart grow fonder and all the rest i really yeah i think that that will be true i think that we i ha, i mean every one of us is like you know so sick of the screen i'm so i i barely even know what people's faces look like anymore <laughs> you know um in real life and so i think that that i think there's going to be a lot of rekindling of what people took for granted absolutely um and you better not take it granted take it for granted everyone because khaki's european well usa and mainly european tour all the dates are on khakiking.com you must be looking forward to getting on the road out on the road that'd be great eh? listen i am being i'm being optimistic i'm being mm. proactive i am not going to do anything that is you know it, 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 it we don't the, the truth is we really don't know um but i do have european dates confirmed and i will be coming with a projection map to lit up beautiful guitar and possibly a drum and um nice. and it will be from the you know latest album and anyway but the point is i am i am we're i'm going forward as if and if mm -hmm. we have to adjust we'll adjust Great. And maybe at some point we hope to see you in Scotland again. I would absolutely would adore to come, come back to Scotland. I don't even know what country you're in now, but um, <laughs> I, can't, I can't wait to figure that out. And, and those wacky work permits and all of that stuff. Oh, crazy, crazy. Right. So 
tell us about the the most recent album then because you must have it, it kind of got really affected by COVID. I believe oh, you started yeah, yeah. it, and then it, you kind of you finished mixing it during COVID. How did how did it all come about? We started on March second, and coronavirus in the United States was like they were there was you know a couple cases. It was it was a whisper that was, but really it was kind of it was not. In those two weeks were the two weeks that it went insane, mm-hmm. and um, so I was. I had done a show called Data Not Found, uh, which is a very big, big, much bigger theatrical undertaking, which will hopefully eventually tour as well. And I wanted to, again, it was much like the next Bridge the Body, I wanted to do the soundtrack. So I was recording the soundtrack with um, Chloe Thompson, who was the sound designer on the, on the theater show, and her boyfriend, Arjan Miranda, and they have a um, studio down the street for me. And it was really easy and perfect. And it felt like, oh, you know, we'll just we'll record the tunes. No, no big, no big deal. We're just, you know, putting a mark on the um, on the tunes for the live show and making sure that those get, you know, photographed, as I like to say. So um, COVID, as I said, was was lurking and we got through the first week of recording. And by the second week, it was dark. All of my, all of our shows had been canceled. I mean, those guys were like selling keyboards to make rent. I, you know, a couple of days later, school got canceled. But again, it was still like two weeks to stop the spread. It was not, hey, everyone, we're shutting down for a year. So we didn't know what to expect. But yeah, we ended up just saying, listen, we, you know, even though we've just been going back and forth a few blocks away from each other, let's just do this remotely. We finished the record and that night Chloe called me and said, Arjun has a really high fever. So we all got COVID. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. And we were all okay, but pretty much we spread it around the studio. But really like, I think something like a quarter of New Yorkers by that point, you know, ended up having COVID in the spring because it was so widespread. Well, there seems to be a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. And with the addition of, obviously, your gigging last week, and I really, really, fingers crossed, touch wood, that those gigs will go ahead and, and things will be better moving forward. It's, yeah. It seems that it's going to be a bumpy road still for a, a, a little bit of a long time. But yeah, hopefully some light at the end of the tunnel. The, I think what I've learned is just to, to not, you know, just to keep expectations within like fairly low let's just say (laughs) just keep them low and be able to adjust and just hope hope for for and really it's all kind of hope at this point there's really no maneuvering that you can do as a as an individual um to change things so um that's where we are that's where we are khakiking.com everyone check it out check out the tour dates guitarist guitar police get yourself one of these whatever you do please Kaki, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you again and hopefully we'll do it again sometime soon. Sounds great. There we have it, ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Kaki King, leaving behind a legacy. I said it once, I'll say it again. KakiKing.com, go and check out all of her material. Look at those up-and-coming tour dates. Hopefully she will be performing at a place near you. If not, hopefully she will do in the future. I sincerely hope she's going to come to Scotland for very selfish reasons so I can finally get to uh, see her perform in person. What an artist, what a person. We are back and you ain't seen nothing. Nothing yet. Stay tuned. Have a great day. Peace and love.